I want to share a couple of things before I pray. I want to pray about this and specifically uh, how we spend these next few minutes uh, in the sermon. There is, we have an adoption fund at Crosspoint Fellowship that we have um, uh, distributed, made funds available to families uh, that were wanting to adopt at different points over the years. And part of that process has been to replenish that. Uh, part of that uh, distribution is a replenishment that means right now we have $26,000 sitting in an adoption fund. And I, I put that out there because I, I, uh, this, is, this church has been involved, very involved in adoption over the years. Um, and a number of families have participated in that. And I put that out there as an announcement uh, for a family that might be considering that and might be thinking, ah, I'm limited by funds. I can't, there's no way I could get together that kind of money. Um, don't fret over that. Don't let something like that keep you from something that God is calling you to. $26,000 right there waiting to be used. We're not a bank. Let me just remind you of that. We're not a bank, and we don't like holding on to that money. So this microphone is still doing some weird stuff. I'm, I feel like I need to kind of talk quietly. So if you can maybe feed feedback or something. It may be these microphones that are on up here might be what's compounding that. That's a nerve-wracking job back there, so um, this one's not at all, so you're good. <laughs> totally kidding. No, I'm good. Um, it's sort of weird when your calm is, is messed up. Um, the other thing I want to share with you is I, I sent out an email this week preparing you for the sermon this morning, or an email guiding you to prepare for the sermon this morning, and I, I'm, I'm actually pulling a little change on you. Um, so if you've prepared, if you followed that guide that I sent out this week, you're going to be really prepared next week. So awesome. You're going to be really on it. So this morning, not so much. But this morning, if you paid attention last week, you're really going to be, I think, blessed in how we spend these next few minutes. Um, and if you're not, I trust that the Holy Spirit can make up the difference. So you'll understand our, our course correction uh, here in a moment after I pray. Let's pray. God, I want to pray first this morning. We want to pray for another church in our community. We want to pray for Faith Outreach, and I want to pray for Rance and Tammy Moore. Lord, I, uh, it's been some time since I've prayed for Rance, and some, some time since I've even thought about the, the ministry there at Faith Outreach, Lord. And I want to very intentionally this morning just celebrate what you have done at Faith Outreach over the years um, and what you are continuing to do, uh, a ministry that's... that's uh, uh, seems to be going the distance over by the Y, Lord. I, I know and trust that there are many families that are being blessed through the ministry there, Lord. And I, I want to pray first for Rance and for Tammy. I pray that they are enjoying you. I pray that their uh, worship is fueling, um, that Rance's worship is, first of all, fueling uh, a ministry to uh, Tammy that puts the gospel on display uh, for family and friends and church, Lord. I pray that that will be, first of all, uh, what's going on in Rance's life and his marriage, and I pray the same thing for the McGraw home and for the other pastors in this church and the other pastors in our community, Lord, that as we're preaching the gospel, that in some ways our marriages are illustrating the gospel um, as frail, feeble guys are loving their wives in a way that can only be uh, glorifying to you. Uh, I pray for the Ministry of Faith Outreach, Lord. I pray that they are connecting to folks that don't know you. And, Lord, I pray that they are discipling and raising up and growing um, folks who do, that they are uh, engaging uh, the lost but also discipling the found. And um, I pray that they are, are blessed as they're about that work. And whatever way that we can serve alongside them, even if it's just as simple as us having the chance to lift them up this morning, Lord, we pray great blessings for them, for your glory and for your name's sake. Lord, in this uh, next few minutes, I pray that, that uh, you will guide um, my words, Lord, I pray that you will uh, tune our ears to what we need to hear. Lord, I pray especially for the husbands and the husbands-to-be in this room. I pray for a, um, a real time of um, equipping in these next few minutes. I'm turning this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. A lot of the men in this room are husbands. Um, some of you will be husbands, some of the single men in this room. I think if I were to ask the men in this room 
what you do as a job, what's expected of you, I suspect that most of the men in this room would be able to give an answer pretty quickly. I suspect that most of the men in this room would be able to give an answer, too, uh, with some confidence in a way that sort of captured almost a sense of identity as a man, especially men. I don't know why it is, but men are very caught up in what we do in our identity as that person or that job. I suspect that you would be able to describe what's expected of you in some ways almost like a job description. Now, if I were to ask you what's expected of you as a husband, I wonder how you'd answer. I wonder, first of all, if you'd have an answer. Second, I wonder what would be the nature of the answer. Would it be that your answer would be what you saw modeled for you as you grew up? Might it be what you believe is sort of the cultural expectation for a husband? Or might your answer be conditioned by what the Bible says your job is and your, um, what's expected of you as a husband? I wonder if I asked you that question, if as you answered it, it would mean something to you, if there would be a visceral connection to it like there is to your job, maybe even more so, hopefully more so, is your identity as a husband. Would it mean something to you? Would it be important to you what you described? I'm hoping that today, however you might answer that question, I don't I, I expect there's a continuum of responses in this room. What I'm hoping for today and next Sunday is a time of equipping for every man in this room that's either a husband or will be a husband so that you can answer that question with confidence and what God's design is and what God's expectations are for the husband. I hope that today and next Sunday will help you um, answer that question too with heart, with like a real burden uh, for what your role is as a husband. That's what I've prayed about this Sunday and what I'm praying about for next Sunday. So let's go to our passage. It's the same passage that we looked at last week. Last week we looked at this passage really as worshipers for every single person in this room. We didn't give really any airtime to our husbands last week. We looked at this passage really as worshipers trying to understand who is Christ and what is our groom to the church done. But this week we're going to look at it as husbands or for the husband's sake. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. There are three things that we can draw out of this passage for husbands. First of all, the command we're going to look at here in a moment. Second of all, the nature of the command or the nature of how that's to be filled out or fulfilled. And then the motive, a motive that maybe you've never really thought of as husbands. First with the command in verse 25, it's a very simple four-word command. Husbands, love your wives. It's the only command in this passage that goes all the way down through verse 32. It's not until verse 33 that it's repeated again. Husbands, love your wives. All else is explaining how. But first of all, we're dealing with the command. Husbands, love your your wives. So it turns out the job is not very uh, difficult. Thankfully, guys like me can appreciate something that's really simple, and that's pretty simple. Husbands, love your wives. Now, it's simple, not easy. It seems like Brad Cardwell said that before in a sermon before. It's simple, not easy. That's a great way to think about it. It's simple. Husbands, love your wives. That's the command. Before we take a, a look at the nature of the command, I thought we should just take a moment just to consider that this is a command. I mean, can we just stop for a minute and consider that this is a command from God? Before men, before we really move on and kind of think about, well, let me kind of see if I want to pick and choose a 
take or leave this message or not, can we just consider, first of all, that this is a command from the God, the same God that spoke creation into existence. Yes, the all-powerful God, the all-knowing God, the eternal God, the heart-searching being that not only gave you life but sustains your breath and life right this very minute. The same God that gave you a season with the woman that's sitting next to you or will give you a season possibly with a woman in the future as your future bride. This God gave you a clear and simple command. Husbands, love your wives. I don't know why this week as I've been preparing for this sermon. Actually, I was preparing for next week's sermon and didn't know this until yesterday. But last night I couldn't get out of my mind the song from 1971, Love the One You're With. Crosby, Stills, and Nash. What a great song. I, I don't know why the song came to my mind. Here are the lyrics. They're interesting. Some of the lyrics are 1970s lyrics, so they don't have an explanation, and they don't really need to because they're from the 70s. If you're down and confused and you don't remember who you're talking to, concentration slip away because your baby's so far away. Okay, listen to this. Well, there's a rose and a fisted glove whatever that means, and the eagle flies with the dove, another 1970s thing that probably made sense then. And if you can't be with the one you love, honey, love the one you're with. Man, you got to love that line. If you can't be with the one you really love, then just go ahead and make the best with your situation and love the one you're with. Don't be angry. Don't be sad. Don't sit crying over good times you've had. There's a girl right next to you. And she's just waiting for something to do. Isn't that great? It gets better. It gets better. Scott Sutton and I laughed, had the best laugh about this song a while back. And I don't know what in the world we were talking about. We weren't talking about our wives, obviously. Obviously, no. We were talking. I don't know what we were laughing about, but it was funny. Here's, here's the next line. It's just is really funny. Turn your heartache right into joy because she's a girl and you're a boy. <laughs> Right? Get it together. Come on, make it nice. You ain't going to need any more advice. That's what he says. Love the one you're with. I don't know why that's stuck into my head, and maybe that's because that's just sort of the world's message is just kind of make the best of what you got, make the best of your situation, and take, uh, I think that was Still's song uh, that he wrote it, take his advice to love the one you're with. That's not what's being said right here. This is a command to love your wives. I sometimes will set up a straw man. Uh, I might do this in a sermon, and um, I might do this in my head. I might do this in something, an email or something like that. A straw man is somebody that you sort of set up that you just sort of waylay through your argument. And this, I had a straw man dialogue going on as I was preparing this sermon. And my straw man either had kind of Irish accent or a Scottish accent. I can't remember what he had. But if some of that comes out, I, I ask your forgiveness. It, just, it, 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 it might just happen. I'm trying to imagine what this, this, this dialogue with a straw man would be like where God is saying, this is my command and I want you to do what I've actually commanded you. And the husband is saying, wait a minute, let me, let me clarify this. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 1, you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge. Remember, this is a command for husbands to love their wives. You shall keep his charge. You shall keep his statutes. You shall keep his rules and his commandments always. Oh, but God, you don't understand. She's so difficult. You must have made a great mistake here. This Surely you meant this is for all other husbands with, lo- with wives that are actually lovable. You couldn't have meant my wife. 2 John chapter 1, verse 6, And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. Oh, but God, I love you, surely. But surely you didn't take into account who you've called me to love. She's so moody. She's so emotional, and she's not like me, who's always easy to love. Luke chapter 11, verse 28, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. 
Husbands, love your wives. That's the command. Period. Yes, that wife. Not the other one that you're dreaming about that she could be or the other one that you wish you'd had. I'm talking that one. Yes, that wife. Before we really consider what we've been called to, men, I want to make sure that you realize it's not a suggestion. It's a command from God to love your wives. Now, the nature of the love that you're called to, here is uh, in the rest of this verse, in verse 25, let's just see if we can unpack this nature and make sense of this. Husbands, love your wives, there's there's the command, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ's love for the church is the model for the husband to love his wife. I want you to think about this just for a moment, like sort of a living play. Like you're, you're, you're trying out for these different roles and you want to be in this play. And so you're, you're, you're talking through these lines and you're acting out these little, little mini episodes. And then you get the results and you get the, the outcome there. And the, the, the play director, I don't know what you'd call him, the director maybe, would actually say, okay, you're playing the part of Jesus. Let that hit you for a minute. In this living play that for some of you may last 50, 60 years, you're going to play the part of Jesus. What? (laughs) Yes, you're going to play that part. If you've listened to a series of sermons at Crosspoint over the years that have to do with marriage or have to do with the relationship between the husband and wife, you've likely heard the phrase from us, because you, you, you'll hear it today and you'll hear it again, husband, daddy, pastor. That's, what, that's what's expected of Ben McGraw at Crosspoint Fellowship, thankfully. Husband, daddy, pastor. Those are my roles in that order and in that important in that order of importance. The most important job that I will ever have is the part that I'm playing in this living play of husband to Christy McGraw right there because I'm playing the part of Jesus. Man, it's more important than my parenting. And those three matter to me. A treat having my third here with me. Those three matter. Man, more important than y'all. Y'all matter. But my number one job is the part that I will play in acting out and living out the role of Christ to the church. Man, it's more important than parent, more important than pastor. Christ's love for the church is the model for the husband. There's a few things that come from this passage, a couple of specifics that come from this passage is that Christ loved the church. We can imitate his love. Husbands in here, if you can identify with that role that you have in this play, we can first of all consider that Christ loved the church. He set his love on a people. Thankfully, if you were here last week, you can enjoy with me thankfully that his love for us is not dependent on how we do. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a one of us in here qualified. He set his love on us. He decided to love us as what we considered last week. He literally decided to love us, not based on our lovability, not based on whether we deserved it or not. It made me think of this passage from 1 Corinthians. Corinthians, listen to this passage. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He didn't choose the most lovable. He didn't even choose the ones that had the most potential. Anybody feel relieved? God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Man, man, let's consider first how Christ loved the church. He simply decided to love the church, period. Not based on her performance. Not based on her lovability. We can imitate his love. And we can imitate his sacrifice. Christ gave himself for his bride. A little chronologue of what that was like. It wasn't just on Calvary. We can make a beeline to Calvary, but let's think about this. The nature of Christ's love for the church was 
wildly sacrificial, starting with his very birth, starting just taking on human flesh. I mean, his, his ministry to the bride was sacrificial, start to finish. Not just in that terrible week of Passover. He left the bliss of heaven and took on flesh and lived as a pauper in ancient Israel. The king of kings lived as a pauper. The oldest son to a commoner named Mary and her husband, a a carpenter. He submitted to these earthly parents. The king of kings submitted to those two and was raised in their home. And at the appointed time, he let one of his creatures, actually his cousin, baptize him in an unimpressive river. I got to see the Jordan a few years ago. Jeff Simmons was with us, and Brad Cardwell, and went to the Jordan, and I was wholly unimpressed. It was like a muddy ditch. You mean the King of Kings and Lord of Lords was baptized right here? In this? Flies everywhere? He began a ministry that lasted three years, and his ministry was full of occasions where his followers left him in droves. Did you know that? Droves. John chapter 6, where he fed the multitudes, ends with them leaving in droves. The ones that are leaving with their bellies full of what he fed them. John chapter 8, after a bunch of people were deciding, yes, of course we believe in you and want to follow you, ends with them wanting to stone him. Man, the Passover week began with them singing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And from the very same mouths a few days later are saying, Give us Barabbas. That's what the nature of his husbandship looked like. Man, he was betrayed for a handful of silver. He was arrested. He, led, he was led from trial to trial and eventually traded for a murderer. The nature of his love, men... Husbands landed him on a high hill outside of Jerusalem, nailed to a piece of wood. This is the part you're playing, men. Husbands, eye contact with you right now. This is your part. To love like Christ did. To give yourself up for your bride like Christ did for you. He loved the church, and he gave himself up for her. So husbands, two questions. First question, does your love imitate Christ's love? Just really an honest question for you to think and ponder on. Does your love imitate Christ's love for the church, or is your love, like mine so often is, dependent on how she's doing? Men? Is your love, like mine, so often dependent on how she's treating you? Men? Is your love for her dependent on her mood? Men, is your love for her dependent on her attentiveness to you? Men, just to ask you this pointed question, have you decided to love your wife regardless of how she's acting, regardless of her mood, regardless of how she's even treating you? Have you decided, like Christ did, to love her? I found a definition of the kind of love that Christ had for us as it plays out in a marriage that I thought was just really good. This sort of love has as its goal only the wife's good. Only the wife's good. And will care for her without the expectation of reward. We could just go ahead and close this morning because our husbands, I'm sure, got this down, right? Yeah, check. Man, this is convicting for me. 
This is something I needed to be reminded of in the nature of Christ's love. I want to take you to a little story. I'm just going to show you a brief part of it. It's in Genesis chapter 24. I'm not going to tell you the whole story. Um, I don't think that's necessary, although it is a really wonderful story. And it covers really the entire chapter 24 of the book of Genesis. It is the story of um, Abraham sending his servant back to his homeland to find a wife for his son Isaac. I encourage you maybe in your free time to just read the whole story because it really is truly a beautiful story. One of the things that I enjoy about the story is you'll, if you read it, you'll see this, is that the whole trip was bathed in prayer. Abraham was trusting the Lord to find a son or to find a, a, a bride for his son. He's, a, he's trusting in the Lord. So much so that he doesn't even go in person. He sends his servant. And his servant, as you see over the course of this trip, bathes this trip in prayer. Lord, show me who I'm supposed to bring back for that young man named Isaac. If you read the whole chapter and you read the whole story, you can see that God's fingerprints are all over the discovery of a young woman named Rebecca. Truly a beautiful story. Here's where the end came, sort of the meeting comes in verse 62. The servant brings Rebekah back to the land, back to Abraham and Isaac's uh, land where they are living there in the land of Canaan. And we pick up in verse 62. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. Must have been a practice for him. This almost sounds like it's what he does. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Oh, I mean, you can almost, I mean, imagine, oh, who's that handsome young man? Then we don't know that that's what she said. We know exactly what it says here. She may have said that also. Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, it is my master. Wink, wink. It's Isaac. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. You almost see Isaac making a beeline to the servant, the servant making a beeline to Isaac. And you see this sort of dialogue transpire where he gives all the details of how this thing went down, how God pointed out uh, Rebecca to him and how they met and how Rebecca came so willingly. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? What struck me over the years as I've read this story, as I've bumped into this story, as I've had occasion to think about how God ordained this meeting of Isaac and Rebekah, what stood out to me more than anything is the passage that I just read to you. And I don't know if you noticed the order, but I'm going to read it again. And if you'll notice, the order is sort of, seems sort of out of order. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he... Loved her. It's out of order for now, right? Because it doesn't work that way now because we love somebody and then we marry them, right? Isn't that the way it works? Isn't that the way it worked for most of you? I hope that's likely the way it worked for most of you. I don't know that anybody in this room had an arranged marriage. Maybe you did. Most of us met our wives, our husbands, and we loved them. We fell in love is the term that's used. And then we married them. But Isaac, though, he didn't even know Rebecca. It says he married her, and then he loved her. You can almost hear the decision. It's almost an audible decision. Okay, you're my wife now, as ordained by the living God. Okay, I love you. You mean you're the one that God brought to me through his circumstances and his plans and his design? Okay, I then... Based on that, decide to love you. I don't even know you. But I love you. Man, I, 
I've wondered over the years if maybe why love is so flimsy for us in our day and age is because we think that we're behind that whole process. Boy meets girl, boy falls in love with girl, boy and girl court, and then they get married, and then it's easier to come unglued because boy and girl said, hey, we're the ones that designed this whole thing in the first place, so why not break it up? But I bet at that wedding, wedding and I bet at every, nearly every wedding you've been to, you've heard the words, what God has joined together, let no man separate. This is a beautiful illustration of something that God joined together. Do you believe that yours is so ordained? Do you believe that a providential and sovereign God who works all things together for good, who works all things according to the kind intention of his will, could have ordained that you're married to that woman? Yes, that woman. And that it's as ordained as Rebecca's marriage to Isaac? If so, then maybe it'd be easier for you to decide to love her. A little confession for you. When Christy and I got married... I didn't really love her. Not like this. It wasn't decision love when we got married. I think when Christy and I got married, what was going on with me more than anything is I said I loved her, I thought I loved her, but really what I loved and who I loved was me. And I just wanted her. I was 28 years old. I've been a Christian since I was six you would think of 22 years of walking with the Lord that I would have some sense of what it meant to love a woman as Christ loved the church. But man, I'm telling you, marriage turns the light on your selfishness. If you really want to know how selfish you are, get married. Goodness gracious. Man, I said I love you, but truly it was I love me and I want you. And now 23 years later, we've perfected this. We've got it down. This decision kind of love. I will say this. We've perfected nothing, but I will say this. You can go the distance in 23 years with a decision love. The romantic love, if that's all you've got and that's all you ever hope it's going to be and that's all you're going to live in, you're doomed. Romantic love ebbs and flows, but decision love will go the distance. And it's the most reflective, the most like the kind of love that Christ has for the church. Men, have you decided to love your wives? I have a prayer that I um, have prayed for me and I've prayed for us. And I'll share with you what the prayer is. And I'll probably close with this prayer. I'm not closing right now. Don't. Don't get ready. We've got a little sermon left. But here's a little heads up the prayer. Lord, teach us to love this way, men. Teach the men in this room, the husbands, to love this way. Continue to grow this love in us so that we'll resemble you, Christ, in our homes. So that our wives would find it very easy and maybe even delightful to follow us. Man, I hope and pray that we will have a love that has as its only goal our wives' good and that we will care for them without the expectation of reward. That's imitating his love, imitating his sacrifice, imitating his ministry. It's the second question. I said I had two questions for the husbands. Here's the second question. Husbands, is the nature of your relationship to her sacrificial? If your kids were interviewed, man, kids know what's up. They see the front row seat to this whole thing. If they're interviewed and they know it's private and they know that it's not going to get back to you, what would they really say? Dad loves mom sacrificially. Would they say that? Or would they say that, you know, dad really expects mom to serve him and he gets so frustrated when she doesn't. You know, dad really kind of lives in that whole teaching about his wife being, my mom being a helpmeet. In fact, I, he doesn't say that a lot, but I can just kind of see him when he's thinking, man, I sure wish she was a better helpmeet. Such a weird word. 
here's a better, a better one. I wish he was a better helpmate. I wish he was a better helper to me, but I'll tolerate her. Is that what your kids would say? Or would they say, no, man, his ministry toward my mom is truly sacrificial. I want you to know that we come by this uh, wanting to be served thing pretty naturally. We come by it pretty honestly, men. I shared this passage a couple of weeks ago when we were preaching through the passage having to, deal, having to do with wives and pointed out to wives what you're likely going to be prone to as a consequence of the fall. And I'll just refresh you. You may have forgotten about this part because there's something in there for the husbands as well. To the woman in Genesis chapter 3, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. You remember we talked about how easy, big deal, epidurals, it's no big deal. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. It's like, it's supposed to be a joke. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Do you remember this from a couple weeks ago, ladies? Your desire shall be for your husband. Guys are thinking, whoa, right, okay, that sounds good. No, it's not that kind of desire. It's your wives, the desire for wives will be to control your husbands. The nagging wife is ancient. The desire for a wife to control her husband, that's an ancient thing and a product of the fall. But here's another product of the fall. The next verse says, and he shall rule over you. Men, if your desire is to be served by her, guess what? You come by it naturally. But here's the good news for you. You don't have to live in the natural. You've been rescued and redeemed from the natural, man. Just like your wives have been rescued and redeemed from the natural desire to control you and fix you and nag you. They don't have to live that way, nor do you have to live with the expectation that I'm going to rule you and you're going to serve me. Your role in life, your job in life is to serve me, little lady. Man, I want to just present a different approach for you husbands. Matthew chapter 28, if Christ is our model, if the part that we're playing is Christ in this living play, listen to what Christ said in Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 20. This story is so cool. I, I'm going to give you a chance to turn there. I want you to turn there. It's the only other place I'm going to have you turn this morning. Just so you're awake, just so you're alert, just so you're seeing where we're going. Just in this passage, one of the cool things that you'll see in this passage is you're going to see your nature, men, your natural sort of nature, and you're going to see Christ's nature or his design for you, the part that you're supposed to play. You're going to see the part that you want to play <laughs> and then the part that you're supposed to play. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. What do these guys want? Sons of Zebedee. Glory. They want some glory. Let's see what happens next. He asked them, are you able to drink this cup? We are. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it's been prepared by my father. And when the ten, all the other disciples heard it, watch what they do. They were indignant at the two brothers. You wonder why they were indignant? You know what made them mad? Because they want glory too. <laughs> These guys made an end around. <laughs> Man, I'm sure there's some football play for what they did. Maybe that it was a football play, an end around. I don't know. But they had some sort of scheme, and the other guys are mad because they're glory thieves too. And they want some glory, and they want to rule, and they want to be served. And Jesus called to them and said, he called all together, come here, come here, guys, come here, come over here. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. We could insert in there, you know that natural husbands want to lord it over their wives too. And they want to rule their wives. We could insert the natural into that. 
You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. You're to be different. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you want to play the part of Christ in this living play, husbands, and your kids are going to get interviewed, hopefully what they begin to say, maybe they wouldn't say it right now, but hopefully what they would say over time as you respond in obedience to this message is, He's serving her. He's serving her. He's not expecting to be served by her. (laughs) What a startling difference from the ancient husband. Man, do you realize the ancient husband 2,000 years ago in this context was likely marrying a woman that was 20 years his, his junior? He's like marrying a little girl. And Paul, God through Paul, is telling the Ephesians, you know what, don't move like the rest of these guys, the rest of these husbands. Instead, you move like Christ moved and serve those little girls. Serve that 14-year-old girl, 45-year-old man. Serve her like the king of kings serves you. Man, husbands, you can't miss this. These are your lines. You learning your lines? The motive for this love that we're called to is in verses 26 and 27. The command is husbands love your wives. Simple, not easy. The model or the nature is Christ. As he loves her and gives himself up for her. You can turn back to Ephesians if you've turned away from it. I told you I wasn't going to have you turn, wasn't going to have you turn anywhere else. But home base will always be home base. So I'm, I'm just turn back to Ephesians 5 if you didn't keep a finger in that section. Let's look for the motive. This is brief. We're about to land the plane. I want you to get this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that, these are his purposes, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. We have three purpose clauses right there. And the central purpose clause to the whole work of Christ for the church is that we might be made presentable to himself that we might actually be able to wear white. Now, husbands, if you need a purpose, which you do, this is a great one. And this one will travel. I'm telling you, this, will, this is thinking outside the box. If Christ's purpose in loving the bride and giving himself up for her was presentability to the perfect groom, then how about making that your purpose in loving your wife, where you're actually serving her and ministering to her with the goal in mind that she will one day be presentable to the perfect groom along with you. What I'm talking about, husbands, in here is that your goal and your purpose for loving her is not just that your life will be better and it'll be easier for you. Being honest, right? That's what most of us are driven by. Let's just keep her happy. Your purpose for loving her this way, your purpose for giving yourself up for her this way, will be so that she's presentable in glory. That will change the way you move with her. I guarantee it. It will transform the way you move with her. If your purposes in loving her and serving her are self-serving, You're going to live in disappointment unless you're married to Superwoman. I mean, like real super, like a real superhero. (laughs) You're going to be disappointed. If, though, your purpose in loving her and serving her and giving yourself up for her is presentability to our groom, that will change the way you treat her when she's struggling. 
That will change the way you treat her when her mood is off. Because you're going to have a new perspective. And you know what you might do instead of griping at her? You might actually pray for her. How about that, dudes? I know what, I know what you're like because I are one of you. <laughs> Man, will you? You've been in this mood forever. Can you snap out of it? Golly, get back to serving me. I mean, you don't say that, but you think that. Man, if you're thinking this thing, whole thing is just for you, of course you think that way. It's not for you. If you're thinking about the goal of presentability for her, it will change the way you engage her. And maybe you will actually pray for her. You'll likely actually maybe even work at giving her time to read and rest and pray and meditate. Wow, dudes, think about that, man. You got a row of kids. Hey, hon, I'm going to take the kids this afternoon, and I'm going to give you some time to just rest and meditate and enjoy the Lord. What? I bet some of you wives, some of y'all will be like, what? Well, who? Some aliens came and stole my husband and gave him somebody who looks just like him came back crazy. What just happened? Let me just tell you, I bet it would be easier for that wife to follow you. Man, it'll change the way you treat her. You'll likely count it one of your greatest priorities in life, too, to actually make sure that she is well-fed spiritually. That she actually makes it to corporate worship gatherings regularly so she can enjoy our groom in song and sermon. Man, that whole mindset will transform the way you move with your wives. It's a great motive and one that just fits. I thought this morning that I would end with a job description from a Puritan named Richard Baxter for the husband. Richard Baxter is one of my favorite Puritans, and he's just got a great job description for the husband. And he's got 12 things, and I may read all 12. They're not long. I hope y'all have enough currency, listening currency left to hear this. Okay, I see a nod over there. Good. All right, that's all I needed. Now, it came from a wife. I should point out that nod came from a wife. She's like, yeah, you better get through that. He's got plenty left. He's still awake. All right, husbands, here's your job description. First, choose a good spouse in the first place. I, I wish I knew how a Puritan would talk because I try and talk like him. A spouse who's truly good and kind, full of virtue and holiness to the Lord. Great. Number one, choose a good one in the first place. Second, don't marry till you're sure that you can love entirely. Yes, I wish I'd have thought about that. I don't have any regrets, but man, I had some growing to do. I bet a lot of you did too. I don't know that Richard didn't learn a lot when he got married too. I guess he's married. I don't know. Third, be not too hasty, but know beforehand all the imperfections which may tempt you to despise your future mate. Take your time. You might think, despising my future mate, how could that possibly happen? You know, in counseling over the years, one of the most common things that I've observed in counseling and marital counseling is the word something, is a, a feeling, contempt. Contempt, it can happen. Unthinkable when you're dating or when you're engaged, but trust me, it can happen. Be not too hasty. Know beforehand all the imperfections which may tempt you to despise your future mate. Here's the fourth one. Remember that justice commands you to love one that has forsaken all the world for you. Dudes, do you realize how blessed we are? <laughs> Think about that. She has forsaken all the world for you. One who is contented to be the companion of your labors and sufferings. And to be a sharer in all things with you. And that must be your companion until death. What a blessing. What a great thing to remember. Here's the fifth. Remember that women are ordinarily affectionate, passionate creatures. <laughs> and as they love much themselves, so they expect much love from you. That's just good counsel. It's good. Here's the sixth one. Remember that you are under God's command. Richard Baxter has a real sense of the command to love. Remember that you men are under God's command, and to deny marital love to your wives is to deny a duty which God has urgently imposed on you. 
That's the part you play, remember? Obedience, therefore, should command your love. Here's the seventh. Remember that you're one flesh. You have drawn her, drawn her to forsake father and mother and to cleave to you. Eighth, take more notice of the good that's in your wives than of her faults. Let not the observation of their faults make you forget to overlook their virtues. Ninth, this is the best one. Don't magnify her imperfections until they drive you crazy. <laughs> I'm just reading what it says. It's pretty funny. I'm just imagining a Puritan, you know, five, four or five hundred years ago, right, scrawling that out. Don't magnify her imperfections until they drive you crazy. Excuse them as far as is right in the Lord. Consider the frailty of the sex. Consider also your own infirmities and how much your wives must bear with you. Remember my Scottish-Irish guy, the straw man? He could do with hearing that. Tenth, don't stir up evil in your spouse, but cause the best in them to be lived out. That sounds like that motive we talked about this morning. Presentability. Eleventh, this may be my favorite one. Overcome them with love, and then they will be loving to you, and consequently, lovely. Love will cause love as fire kindleth fire. A good husband is the best means to make a good and loving wife. Men, your biggest problem your wife may have is you. The biggest obstacle that she may have to being an amazing wife may be, and frankly, likely is, you. Last one. Live before them the life of a prudent, lowly, loving, meek, self-denying, patient, harmless, holy, heavenly Christian. Let's pray. Lord, teach us to love this way. Or teach us to love our wives in a way that has its goal as only our wife's good. Lord, continue to grow this love in us so that we'll resemble Christ in our homes. And so that our wives will find it very easy and even delightful to follow us. Lord, I'm entrusting these men to you. I'm praying these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's distribute the elements.